And he came out and went, as was his custom, to the Mount of Olives. And the, and the disciples followed him. And when he came to the place, he said to them, Pray that you may not enter into temptation. And he withdrew from them about a stone's throat, and knelt down and prayed, saying, Father, if you are willing, remove this cup from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. And there appeared to him an angel from heaven, strengthening him. And being in agony, he prayed more earnestly, and his sweat became like great drops of blood, falling down to the ground. And when he rose from prayer, he came to the disciples and found them sleeping for sorrow. And he said to them, Why are you sleeping? Rise and pray that you may not enter into temptation. Thanks, Laura. And it's great to have you with us, especially if it's your first time amongst us and perhaps you've been invited because of an offer of uh, an invitation to be here and have one of our Easter buns, or perhaps you've been a regular. Whatever the case is, we're here to find out why Jesus is worth exploring. Before I do that, I'm actually going to ask God to help me <coughs> in this process, given that what we have just heard comes from the Bible. And so I'm going to pray, and it may not be something that you do ordinarily, uh, but if it is, you might like to join me. If it's not, just listen in, because what I'm going to be asking God to do is to help me to speak clearly and helpfully, and for us to listen carefully. So please join me if you're the praying kind. Let's pray. We thank you, dear Father, that we can meet at this lunchtime to hear of you and your Son, our Lord Jesus. Now, Father, we pray that you might help me to speak well. Uh, please help us to listen ever so carefully. And please help us to respond in a manner that is truly pleasing to you. Amen. Well, he was born in a dumpy, rural, geek town. I'm sure if they had flannels back then, he would have worn one. He was born to a teenage mother, and he lived in relative obscurity about, until about the age of 30, working a blue-collar job. But the legacy of his life makes him one of the most popular figures of all time. Arguably, more books have been written of him, more songs have been sung of him, more paintings have been painted of him, more poetry has been written of him than any other figure in history, arguably. And he is, of course, Jesus the Christ. Some years ago, a friend of mine visited, as you will see on the screen, Niagara Falls. In Niagara Falls, there's something like 570,000 litres of water pouring over that cliff per second. That's a lot of water, isn't it? Apparently, 20% of the world's fresh water flows over it. My friend decided to imitate Jesus. So what did he do? He stood there on the edge, one of the edges there. Well, then you can't quite see that, can you, with the light? But anyway, there's water there in case you can't see that. But he's on the side here, and he actually pulled out his arm towards Niagara Falls, and he went, Stop! Be still! 
And at that moment, apparently, the weather patterns changed somehow. The wind blew in the wrong direction, and all the rain fell on him. Who <laughs> 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 says God doesn't have a sense of humour? <laughs> he was, of course, seeking to imitate Jesus, who, when you read the biography of Jesus, whatever biography you read, that is in the New Testament, there are four of them, but if you read of any of the biographies, you'll see that Jesus really is that kind of person. He is powerful. He stops storms. Not only that, he raises dead people. He goes around healing diseases. He's someone who, in the face of an angry crowd, just faces them with cool, calm steadiness. He's connected. He's someone who doesn't lose it. In in the face of Pontius Pilate, he's there, just steady, ready to actually speak the truth in love. Which is why when we come to this point, when we come to this particular account in the biography of Jesus, we find something that is rather unusual. I want to suggest to you that this part of the biography of Jesus really helps us understand why Jesus is unique. The twelve disciples have just had their last supper with Jesus. And now it's time to pray. And Jesus takes them to a place called the Mount of Olives. Have a look there if you've got your outlines open. It would be good to turn to that. The small number 39, which is really the beginning, at the beginning of the section there, the first sentence. And I'm just going to read those first two sentences there. It says, And he, that is Jesus, came out and went, as was his custom, to the Mount of Olives. And the disciples followed him. And when he came to the place, he said to them, Pray that you may not enter into temptation. And he withdrew from them about a stone's throw and knelt down to pray. That is, here we come to a point in which we learn that Jesus is praying. And we're on sacred ground, as it were, for what we're about to do is to listen in on the private prayer of Jesus to his Father. For the first time, we start to see Jesus quite unlike himself. He's a stone's throw away from the place that he is praying, so he's all by himself. And he's kneeling down and he's deeply troubled. In fact, we learn, if you go to the small number 44 there, in the account, verse 44, it says, And being in agony, he prayed more earnestly, and his sweat became like great drops of blood falling to the ground. His sorrow is killing him. His sweat looked like blood. He's probably shaking probably prostrate, flat on the ground. Because this prayer is something that is bringing him into the face of lethal sorrow. It's killing him. It's most unusual. It's not like any other part of the biography regarding how Jesus behaves. He is so unlike himself, as it were. And we need to ask the question, why is this the case? And I want to suggest to you 
that this is especially why Jesus is worth exploring. Because when we get this, we will actually start to understand the very heart of God. This account actually takes place on this particular day, on the very first Easter. It was on the Thursday night. And in this prayer, we learn it is the prayer of the perfect son to the perfect father. And what does he pray? Just that one line. at Verse 42, the small number 42 there. What does he pray? Father, if you are willing, remove this cup from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. Remove this cup from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. Please note, firstly, he's praying to his Father, his heavenly Father, his heavenly Father who has loved him for all eternity, his Father. And Jesus' request is for his Father to take this cup from him. But it begs the question, what, what are you talking about, a cup? What is this cup? Well, you have to go to another part of the Bible to understand. There are several parts, but here's one coming up on the screen. But it is God who judges. He brings one down. He exalts another. In the hand of the Lord is a cup full of foaming wine mixed with spices. He pours it out. And all the wicked of the earth drink it down to its very dregs. All the wicked drink it down to its very dregs. In other words, if you go to the next slide, you will see that the cup is a metaphor. A metaphor for the just anger of God poured out on the wicked. A metaphor for the just anger of God poured out on the wicked. We'll just go to the blank slide now. We don't like talking about the anger of God these days, do we? In fact, we don't like talking about anger, really. Perhaps it's because our anger is mostly very unjust. Our anger is very unrighteous. Because human anger is often irrational, uncontrollable, and so often it's so self-centred. I can imagine... There are times in your life when you've actually felt angry and you kind of wonder, well, where did that come from, for whatever reason? It certainly has been the case for me. I can, I can remember moments in which I would find one shoe of one child over here and the same pair, that the other matching shoe on another part of the house or something like that, and I'd just get enraged over that. I remember going through that kind of time, you know, earlier on in my fatherhood, if I can put it that way, and it was just irrational. I mean... People don't die just because shoes aren't matching. <laughs> but I thought they did, right? It's almost like heaven and hell was, was at stake because shoes were not together. Well, what's going on there? And sometimes anger is about preserving my honour. It's about preserving my reputation. It's about, well, ruining someone else out of revenge. There's a newspaper article that I came across in Germany. It's coming up on the screen. It reads like this. 
Heinrich of Frankfurt has been given a 10-month sentence and fined 1,500 euros for assaulting a traffic policeman. Here's something for your mouth, shouted Heinrich as he punched the policeman in the face after he refused to remove the ticket from his illegally parked vehicle. Heinrich is an anger management consultant. <laughs> that, that's what happens sometimes, isn't it? For various reasons, I came across this article when I was in Germany some time ago. This is crazy, isn't it? I'll just go to the black slide now. There is such a thing as anger that's irrational. And, and most of us get that. But there is such a thing as righteous anger. Some would say the anger that is felt by a recent cheating incident in a certain cricket game gets people angry justly. But there's such a thing as a really righteous anger. And we don't possess it often. We do from time to time. But God always does. His anger is always measured and just and right and loving and true. He always gets it right. In fact, the Bible says that he is slow to anger. Slow to anger. Not quick. Not irrational. Slow to anger. And abounding in love. In fact, his anger is loving, I put to you. It is a righteous His wrath is absolutely free from any wickedness. But when it is expressed, it is always directed at the wicked. But I wonder whether, like me, you don't think of yourself as wicked. Because by and large you do good things, don't you? I don't think I consider myself amongst the wicked, and I suspect you don't either. We don't go around and tattooed on our forehead is the word wicked. We don't go around thinking, oh, I've entered into this place and everybody's so righteous and I'm the most wicked of all. But I wonder whether it's because we don't quite perceive ourselves rightly. In fact, I wonder whether we have zero self-awareness when it comes to wickedness. Because I do all these good things, because in the end, you see, wickedness is just as much about who you live for as it is about the acts that you do. I know of a doctor in Perth who was a really good doctor from all reports, very compassionate, very kind, and he left Perth to go to another city in order to help a group of people with his doctrine. Again, he was kind, he was compassionate, he was competent. Turned out, though, that the people he was a doctor for was ISIS. Whose side is he on? He's kind and compassionate, doing all these moral things. But he was doctoring for a group of people who wanted to kill others to set up a Muslim caliphate. You see, what is it that expresses wickedness? 
ultimately is whose flag you fly under or who's your leader, who's your boss. Who is your leader? Who is your boss? Because if it's not Jesus, if it's not the God of the universe who made you, who gives you every breath that you take, then in the end, you are on the other side. And you're on the side of wickedness. Jesus was not on the side of wickedness. Jesus loved his Father as the Father loved his Son for all eternity. It's more wonderful that Jesus asked his Father to take this cup from him. For Jesus was never wicked. He never deserved the wrath of his Father. He was the perfect Son. He knew it and his Father knew it. And furthermore, he knew what it meant to face the wrath of his Father. It was punishment beyond compare. It was a wrath that drove you to hell. Father, please take this cup from me. Please take this cup. Is what he prays to the point of sweating what looks like blood onto the ground. Please take this cup. You, you start to understand why he's unusual at this point because he knows what's going on. But greater than his desire for self-protection, greater than his desire for self-preservation, was his desire to do his Father's will. Not my will, but your will be done. Praise Jesus. Not my will. See, here is the love of the perfect Son for the perfect Father. And Jesus' request is more than reasonable. It's right. It's just. It's loving. But it's not the will of his Father. For the will of his Father was for Jesus to drink the cup to its very dregs in the place of the wicked, where all the anger of God that should have been poured out on you and me and every person throughout history was poured out on Jesus instead of you and me. And please remember that the Father has loved the Son. He has loved the Son for all eternity. And Jesus treasures his Father's will more than his own will. Well, what's that got to do with us today? Well, there are a couple of implications I put to you. See, one implication is that there cannot be any other way to be saved from the wrath of the Father. If there was another way, don't you think that the Heavenly Father would have provided it and not put it out on His Son? There can't be another way. If there is another way, well, we would go the other way and God would not have had to do this. But He had to do it. So there's no other way to be saved outside of Jesus taking the punishment for us. And how can we possibly think that we can save therefore by being a good person or by helping people or by being a good upright citizen in society or by attending church or by getting baptised or taking communion or, or being religious in any sense. We can't, that cannot be the way. There can't be another way. Jesus is unique. 
Second implication is, we, even though uh, the first implication is that we can't be saved through our religious works in any sense, our religiosity doesn't get us there. But the other thing too to note is that no other religion can get us there either. Buddhism, Hinduism, Islam. That's what this, uh, this is implying because Jesus had to drink the cup. There is no other way. That's why Jesus is worth exploring. And Jesus is unique. Of course, the disciples didn't quite appreciate all of this. They didn't appreciate it at this time. I mean, how could they? Sure, Jesus had said that his soul is overwhelmed to the point of death. But they just had a big meal. It was late at night. It was very hard to stay awake, let alone watch and pray. Their spirit was willing, but their flesh was weak. And so as we remember the events of this first Good Friday, I wonder whether we fail to appreciate what's taking place as well. Because for, in one sense, the battle for our salvation was won here at the Mount of Olives. In one sense. Because from this point on, Jesus is hell-bent on going to the cross. From this point on, he comes back, as it were, to his usual self in the face of opposition that in the end kills him. The best things in life are experienced in relationship, aren't they? And the closer the relationship, the richer the potential for the experience. It doesn't matter how good the experience is, it's always better to share it with someone, isn't it? We went snorkelling as a family some years ago remember one of our children went out on her own for whatever reason uh, and she saw this amazing turtle and then she just floated over the turtle. I don't know whether you've been snorkeling and been snorkeling over a turtle but it is quite magnificent. So she did that on her own. She came and said, guess what I did? Guess what I did? And then we all said, what? You said it's a turtle. And we go, whoa, wow, wow, wow. We're all going that thing. That, that's incredible. But, but it still didn't feel the same for her because we weren't there at the same time watching this turtle just glide underneath us. It wasn't the same. It's not the same. You know, even take pictures. You just see pictures of it. And you saw Niagara Falls. Does it make you feel like, I've been there? <laughs> no, it's this experience of sharing it with someone just makes it all the richer, doesn't it? The worst things in life are lack of relationships. Yes, we all enjoy being alone from time to time, but none of us enjoy being lonely, and that's a big difference doesn't matter how introverted you are. I take it you still love relationships. And something even more acutely painful than loneliness is broken relationships. Losing relationships. When the girl of your dreams says no, or the boy of your dreams says no. It hurts, doesn't it? It really does. But can I say that when a marriage breaks up, it hurts even more? 
know that given a group this size, there are some of you who have experienced that firsthand with parents or close family or close friends. And you know the pain that they are feeling. If not feeling yourself. And if that's you, I'm really sorry. It's awful. I've met too many people now in the life that I've lived to recognise how how incredibly painful that is. And that's why we also hate death, isn't it? Because death severs relationship with the ones that we love. Death takes away relationships. We're not made to be alone like that. And the closer the relationship we have with people, the more, more painful it is when that relationship is severed by death. And again, I'm really sorry if that's you. No relationship in the universe has been as close as the relationship between God the Father and God the Son. No. Not even the best of marriages has been as close as this. They have been in perfect unity for all eternity and together with the Holy Spirit they're actually one, one for all eternity. And so when Jesus died on the cross, he drank the cup the undiluted wrath of his father to its very dregs, for that was the will of his father. Our sin caused such devastation in the Godhead that somehow, for the first time in eternity, somehow, I don't know how, but it says something on the lines of God forsaking God. So Jesus died in loving obedience to his father because he treasured his father's will. It'll be five years almost to the day when I lost my dear wife from pancreatic cancer. And that, in retrospect, has just given me a tiny glimpse, just a tiny glimpse into what is going on in the cross. kindness of God has raised up my beautiful second wife who is here. But I tell you, I'm only starting to get this a little bit more. What happened on the cross of Christ. And so Jesus died in obedience to his father. But he knew that his death would save others like you and me. And of course he didn't stay there. He rose back up to life again because he wanted to. It was his will and God raised him as well. Raised him to be the king of kings, the one who is the lord of lords, the one who now sits at the right hand of his father in heaven, the one who will come back to judge the living and the dead. See, Jesus is worth exploring. And as we come into Easter... This is what the first Easter is all about in the end. That's why this particular account, even though it's not directly on the death and resurrection of Jesus, is all about the death and resurrection of Jesus, do you see? 
So if you're here for the first time hearing these things, please come and find out more. Please indicate that on that sheet that you're going to tear off and fill out that you want to find out more. But for some of you, perhaps you finally get it. It may be that you've been going to church for years. It may be that you've just been reading the Bible in recent times. Or maybe you've just come in for the first time. I don't know where you're at in your spectrum, but you finally get it and you realise that you need to do something about that. That you realise that you're on the side of wickedness, having ignored God and followed another leader in the end, primarily yourself, rather than the true leader, who is Jesus. And if that's you, and you know that you need to do something, then all you need to do is ask God in prayer. And I want to invite you to do that with me now, if that's where you're at now. You'll see coming up here a prayer to pray. And I want to read it out to you before I actually pray it with you. It says this, Dear Father, please forgive me for ignoring you. Thank you that Jesus uniquely lived, died, and rose again gladly in your plans. Thank you that trusting his unique obedience alone saves us. And please save me to gladly live for him as my Lord and Savior from now on. You see the prayer? It's a very simple prayer. And if that's your prayer, then I'm going to invite you to pray this prayer, sentence by sentence. What I'm going to do is pray that prayer sentence by sentence, but I'm going to invite you to echo it in your head and your heart to God in silence. And if that's your prayer, you do that. And let me assure you that God will answer. So will you pray with me? If this is your prayer. Dear Father, Please forgive me for ignoring you. Thank you that Jesus uniquely lived, died, and rose again gladly in your plans. Thank you that trusting his unique obedience alone saves us. Please save me to gladly live for him as my Lord and Saviour from now on. himself rejoices before the angels. If this is you. Now I want to invite you to 
tear off this slip now, like that, and you will see that there are opportunities. We'd love to get your details if you've not given them before, so that we can actually meet with you and serve you as best we can. But you'll see that there's opportunities to say that you know, I'm a regular, or I'd like to find out more, etc. But there's a, the third one lost is I prayed. If you did pray that prayer for the first time, or the first time in a long time, we'd love you to tick that one. But we would especially like you to tick the other one in terms of wanting to study the Bible with someone or find out more, because we'd love to meet with you to do that. And there's an indication of where it is that you might be free in terms of a timetable to meet with us. And then on the back, if there's any comments or questions, we'd love you to do that. Can we give you a moment to do that now, all of us? so that we won't feel as if the person next to us is looking down over our shoulders or vice versa. So we can all write something down. And then uh, I think someone is going to lead us in prayer. Right. Why don't you come up now? You keep writing. And at the end, Josh will tell us how all of this is going to be collected on the way out. And I suspect after the prayer, there might be time for some questions, given how early we finish. So we'll